All right, let's get into the Word of God. Let's open up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are turning a corner in the book of Revelation, not only by going to a new chapter, but thematically. We're in this interesting part of the book of Revelation where Jesus is addressing the seven churches. It's unlike any other portion of the book. It's pretty kind of down-to-earth and nitty-gritty. And through this, God is speaking to us as a church, and he's speaking to us about our lives as members of the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, and our priorities, our loves, our passions, what's most important to us. So the title of this message is Love Lost, Such a Cost. Anybody catch the veiled reference to a Neil Young song? Anybody get that? Old people, not old, but (laughs) sorry, sweetheart. You know, people that know Neil Young, did you get that? Okay, that means nothing, but that's where I got the title. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. By the way, our Ventura campus is getting this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them. Ventura campus. We're going to start reading in verse 19 of chapter 1 for a little bit of context. Jesus is speaking to John the Apostle. We studied this last week, but just a little context. Jesus says, after this great vision that John had of Christ, says, write therefore... The things which you have seen, that would be the vision of Christ that we talked about last week. And the things which are, that would be the content of chapters 2 and 3. Okay, the, the condition of the churches at that time. And the things which shall take place after these things. The rest of the book of Revelation perhaps. Verse 20 is a clarifying comment from Christ. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We talked about the two possible interpretations of that last week, being actual angels or representative of leaders in the churches. I think it's leaders in the churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves to be apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured all of this for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we're looking at your word now, you would help us by the Holy Spirit to understand how it's speaking to us. Lord, save us from thinking that this would be a good message for someone else or some other church. We want you to speak to us. We know that because you love us, like this church in Ephesus, there's good things you want us to be aware of, and there's some, some things that ought not to be, some areas of neglect in our life that out of love you want to address. I know this has been true for me this week. And so, Lord, speak to us this way. Make us humble under your sovereignty and under your word, and give us grace to receive what you would say to us, and joy in repentance, Lord. We ask that you please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that accomplishes your purposes by the power of the Holy Spirit and is good for your people. Give us ears to hear now, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's pretty obvious what's going on in the text, but let's try to kind of bring it down to earth for ourselves here. Imagine if Jesus showed up here at reality, second service, one Sunday and walked up on the stage and said, second service, reality, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about you guys. <laughs> I saw a few of you wince. 
exactly what I think. Of course, it would be through the lens of his love and it would be in the, in the truth of the gospel and that through what he did on the cross for us, we're accepted before him by grace through faith. All those things would be true and it would be delivered in love. But in love, there would perhaps be some rebukes whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he would perhaps have some good things to say and some challenging things to say. That's what's going on here. He's walking onto the stage of this church in Ephesus, so to speak, and saying, I'm going to give it to you straight, guys, because I love you. Now, it's one thing for him to do that at the church. And I know what happens when you're on the other side of the equation. You know, you're sitting in the pews and Jesus is up here saying some things and you're like, that's not my problem, but I hate to be Brit right now. Because it's so easy on that side to think about the whole church as not being about you, but it is. It's about us. What is the church? The church is made up of the church. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, you became the church and a part of the church. So what he has to say to the whole church, although the church will have a corporate or group identity, he will also have to say in many ways, often to us as individuals. So we need to hear it as individuals. We need to hear it as a church, but we need to hear it and respond to it as individuals. And how cruel. Jesus didn't just say, hey, here's what's good and here's what's bad. He then wrote it down for all the world, for all of eternity to read about the church in Ephesus. Imagine if he did that with our current spiritual condition. I'm thankful it's them and not us. And yet, maybe it's us. You see, only Jesus knows and Jesus knows all things. That's why he said there in the first verse, I'm the one who holds the stars in my hands, the the representative leadership of the church. And I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I'm the one who's present in the church. And I know all things about the church as a whole. I know all the behind the scenes. I know all the secret motives. And I know everything about those who make up the church as a whole, their interior thought lives, their heart and how they feel and what they're responding to and what their true passions are and why they act the way that they act. He knows all things. Last week we saw Hebrews 4.13 where God says, the word of God says, nothing is hidden in all creation from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. God is infinitely and intimately concerned with the totality of our lives. And thankfully, because he is love, he loves us. But in his love, He says good things to us and things which are difficult, but ultimately good. And we need to hear it. Verse seven, he who has ears, let him hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. Now this church and the other six churches that we'll look at over the next few weeks were actual, literal, historical churches, okay? They were real cities, real places, real congregations with real leaders and real issues, But the message doesn't only stop with those ancient churches. It pertains to us because they not only uh, represent themselves, but they can become symbolic of the church as a whole in various times and ways throughout history. So this will help us to understand a little bit about the church in Ephesus and the city where they were. Behold, a map. Here is a map. You guys don't laugh at much at second service, do you? (laughs) Throw me the occasional bone. We'll all be happier. Uh, Even if I'm not funny, just make me think I am. Here's a map of the Middle East, modern map of the modern Middle East. There's Israel right there. You can see Israel. Here's all these other places. And the area where these seven churches are located is modern-day Turkey right there along the coast and slightly into the interior. Uh, This is what used to be known as Asia Minor when we read in our New Testament that Paul was going to Asia on a missionary trip. This is the region that was in question. And a little bit over here, you know, Italy's over here. This is a Mediterranean Sea. This is a Black Sea. I have no idea what countries are up there. I went to Carpi and we didn't learn much. (laughs) We learned there's the ocean, there's the mountains, you're fine. Uh, But this is Turkey, and John is exiled on a little island off the coast, about 50 miles off the coast, called Patmos, and he's riding to these churches right here along the coast. Now, Ephesians was the most coastal of those seven cities that are being addressed in chapters 2 and 3. And it was an important city. It was a busy city. It was not only a coastal town, but it was a port town. They had a big harbor that was there, and they were at the mouth of a river. That meant that they had trade from both inland and 
off land, right? Ships coming in through the Mediterranean Sea and elsewhere and coming into port and, and people bringing goods down the river. And so there was lots of hustle bustle in this city. There was lots of trade. And because of that, there was affluence. In this city, it was pretty easy to make money and to sell and to buy goods. And so there was affluence and there was accumulation. And there was a lot of culture in this city. Because in a port city, there's always the exchange of ideas. And so others would come from other lands and they would share culture and they would enrich culture and there were new ideas. And so it was a hotbed of different thinking and new thinking and current thinking. A wealthy trade center, beautiful Mediterranean setting, radically immoral city. There was there the temple of Diana, and Diana was one of the main goddesses of the land during the time. And this temple was one of the biggest in the world. At that time, it was known as one of the seventh, seven excuse me, wonders of the ancient world. And people would come from all over the region to worship this false god, Diana, there. And the worship primarily had to do with sexual acts. They were immoral. They often involved sexual mutilation of one another. This was the kind of stuff that was going on in the city in the context of worship. So it wasn't just that sexual perversion was tolerated, it was celebrated. It wasn't that it was just something that happened behind closed doors over there. It was something that happened in the major city center where people gathered. This was a place where immorality and horrific sorts of immorality were applauded, practiced, lauded, accepted, expected. And in this context of affluence, accumulation, mass exchange of ideas, and gross sexual immorality, a church was birthed. Paul had wanted to go there on his second missionary journey, but you'll remember from Acts chapter 16 that the Spirit said, no, not at this time. He ended up going to Macedonia. But on his way back to Israel, he stopped through Ephesus and he realized the cultural and strategic importance of the city, that the gospel had to come here. So on his next missionary journey, his third missionary journey, Paul went to Ephesus and there he began to preach the gospel. He would preach it in the marketplace. He'd preach it in uh, public places of gathering and in the synagogues. And people began to repent of their sins and follow Jesus as the only true Savior of the world, as the Messiah. And as I said then, a church was birthed. And this church was vibrant and it was having an effect. It wasn't just cocooning away from culture, it was affecting culture. It was confronting the idols of the city and the immorality of the city and the materialism of the city. Demons were being cast out and people were being healed, we read of in Acts chapter 19. And many were being saved. And it was having such an effect upon people's public lives that it was affecting commerce. In Acts chapter 19, we read that there were those who made artifacts of worship for the temple of Diana the goddess and that their business was beginning to diminish because less people were worshiping Diana, more people were worshiping Jesus. It's a good thing. That's the gospel. The church having a real impact in the city that was visceral, tangible, even, God forbid, fiscal. And they got upset by that, that their finances were being cut and they began to riot and they called a big public meeting and they wanted to string up the leaders of the church and one of the public officials intervened, we read in Acts chapter 19. But the point is this, that this church that Jesus addressing is addressing here was a church that was having a profound impact in a very affluent, vibrantly cultured, but spiritually dark, morally corrupt place. As the church should. As the church should. And Jesus recognized this. He commends them in nine different ways in this passage. He had nine good things to say about them. They were undeniably doing a good work. Verse two, Jesus says to them, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you've endured for my namesake and you've not grown weary. 
Jesus says to this church, you guys are working hard. I know your deeds. You're not passive. You're not pew potatoes. You're not just getting together and singing songs. You guys are doing the work of the ministry. You're making a difference. You're meeting the needs of the community. You're out and preaching the gospel and you're working hard at it. He says, I know your deeds. And then to elaborate, he uses the word toil. It's a certain word in the Greek. It's the idea of working to exhaustion. He says, you guys aren't a passive church. You're not a pew potato church. You're not sitting on your hands. You are doing the hard work of the ministry. Many of you are working to the point of exhaustion. And you're doing it for my namesake, he says in the next verse. Hard work for the glory of God, giving themselves to the purposes of God in a place that was dark and needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, was drawing opposition, as the gospel will, anywhere that it goes. And so he says to them, you have perseverance. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, he says. And that word perseverance is a unique word. There was a lot of opposition in the city of Ephesus. They weren't popular. They were having an impact. It wasn't always what people wanted. And so there was some conflict and spiritual conflict taking place. And they persevered. The Greek word doesn't denote a passive sort of perseverance. It's not like they just said, oh man, the warfare is intense. We'll just kind of hunker down and just wait for it to pass. You know what I mean? That's, that's not what they were doing. The idea, rather, of this sort of perseverance is tenacious, triumphant overcoming. They were grabbing it by the horns, so to speak. They weren't seeing themselves as victims of a dark, corrupt, materialistic, sexually immoral culture. They were seeing themselves as heralds of righteousness and the gospel. So they weren't passive about it. They were rather aggressive. Someone once said to a fellow sufferer, you know, it's so amazing the way that suffering colors life. And this person said, yeah, but I'm going to choose the color. In other words, I'm not going to be a victim of circumstance. That was this church. They weren't a victim of their culture. They were a voice and a force in their culture. Beethoven, that great composer, he was playing in the worship team today. Not that one, a different one. Finally, a little giggle from you guys. Beethoven was, you know what he was, great composer, musician, so on and so forth. Did you know that Beethoven in his life began to go deaf? He was losing his hearing. And of course, all of his friends and all of his culture and all of his town were saying, how unjust, how not right of all the people, of all the gifted people, that you would begin to lose your hearing. You must be so sad. You must be so despondent. You must be so angry at it. And Beethoven said, on the contrary, I plan on taking life by the throat. He was just saying, I'm not going to be a victim to circumstance. I'm not going to sit here and cry about it. I'm not just going to hope that it goes away or that I'm okay. That's the kind of perseverance, the tenacity, the triumphant overcoming sort of attitude that this church has. And so Jesus repeats it in verse three. He says, you guys have perseverance and endurance and you're doing it for my namesake. You're not doing it for your own glory. You don't want church of Ephesus up in lights. You're not looking to see the name of reality up on lights. There's no famous pastor trying to make a name for himself. You guys are doing the hard work and the right things, persevering with tenacity in the Lord for my name's sake. This is good stuff. This is a good church. But it's not only that they worked hard and suffered well. They also maintained doctrinal purity. See, in the second part of verse two, he says, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. They weighed everything against the word, right? They didn't just believe every wind of doctrine, every great claim of some charismatic character. They tested things against the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the word of God. But it's not only that they worked hard and suffered well and maintained doctrinal purity, but they also sought moral purity. The middle of verse two, He says, and you guys cannot endure evil. We see it also in verse six. He says, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
And we're not sure what the Nicolaitans were all about. We'll see them again in a few verses uh, in a couple weeks, and we'll explore them more. We're not sure what they were teaching or what they were doing, but it seems that it was something that had to do with the immorality of the day. And Jesus said to this church, this is good. You guys work hard. You guys persevere and endure. You're doing it for my namesake. You're maintaining right doctrine. You're not compromising on theology and the word of God. And you're pursuing righteousness. You're pursuing and preaching righteousness. I mean, this was a church that was doing well. They identified what Jesus hated and they hated it, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They didn't flirt with perversion. They called it out for what it was. This is good stuff. They seem to be an amazing church. Busy in service, patient in suffering, discerning about doctrine and practice, orthodox in belief, pursuing righteousness, and all for his namesake. Gosh, that we would be a church like that. That's really, really good. Nine commendations from Christ. Now, there's no secrets here. There's a big but in the middle of this passage. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. He's speaking about himself and their love for him. And what they were neglecting had the possibility of negating everything that they were doing so well. In light of what they weren't doing, everything that they were doing was in danger of being rendered null and void. We saw in the latter verse, he said, repent of leaving your first love. Otherwise, I'm taking your lampstand out of its place. I'm removing your lampstand. And otherwise, in other words, you're not going to be a church anymore. I understand you guys are a good church doing a good work, but there's a major, major disconnect that doesn't work. You've left your first love. I'm not the main thing Christ is saying. I'm not the main passion. I'm not the main goal. I'm not the driving force behind what you're doing. Your hearts and minds aren't captivated, charmed, and entranced with who I am. Therefore, what you're doing doesn't matter that much in light of what you're missing. It's not the first time that Jesus conveyed an idea like this to someone. In Luke chapter 10, he went to the home of Martha and Mary with his disciples for a meal. And Martha was preparing a meal for Jesus. And of course, you know, it's like Jesus is in your house. You're going to make your best dish. And you're going to make it awesome. You're going to make it beautiful. And you're going to work really hard. And she was working hard. And all while she's working, it says in Luke chapter 10, that Mary was just seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. And Martha becomes exasperated in her hard work. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. Now let me tell you what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, seriously, Mary, what are you doing just sitting around listening to me? Get up and help your sister make dinner. This is so unfair. Get busy, Mary. You're wasting your time just sitting there at my feet, listening to my word, being with me. You should be doing something for me. It's not what he said. He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her, has eternal, lasting, glorious value. When she asks the question, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this work for you? His response was, no, I do not. In light of what you're neglecting. And that's what he's saying to the church in Ephesus. You're doing these gloriously wonderful things, but you've left your first love. You've drifted. You've backslidden. That's what it is. He's telling them you guys are backsliders, right? It used to be the main thing. I was your first love. You've left me. That's, that's, that's backsliding. 
you've lost sight of what's most important in your life. Israel wanted Jesus to boil it down for him. They came to him and they said, when he was on earth, Jesus, we've got these 613 commandments. That's what the Torah has, 613 commandments. And then we've got these rabbis and these scribes and these Pharisees that are always adding to it and complicating it and expounding upon it so that we have literally thousands of commandments. It's getting tricky to follow God. Jesus, can you boil it down for us? What is the most important thing? And Jesus said to them in the Gospels, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the main thing. In other words, if you're pulling that off, you're pulling it off. In other words, if you're not pulling that off, you're not pulling it off. It doesn't matter what else you do or don't do. I have called you into a love affair. I have not saved you to be busy. I've not saved you to be distracted. I've not saved you to a million other things. I've saved you to bring you into my love, to receive my love, and to reciprocate that love through meaningful relationship. That's what I made you for. That's what I've saved you for. Here's the main thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else is details. If you're getting that, you're getting it. If you're missing that, you're missing it. And for some reason, we, God's people, have always had the proclivity to miss it. In the book of Jeremiah, God's people were missing it. They were once again drifting. And you know, when you drift, you do crazy things. Things you never thought you would do. The southern kingdom of Judah ended up sacrificing their children to false gods. When they drifted away from the one true God. And true worship, I mean, sin has this weird, blinding, perverting effect on us. And so through the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, God comes to them and he's leveling these complaints against his people. Look, you guys are, you guys are radically blowing it here. But he boils it down to one thing for them, all sorts of complaints. Read the book. But he boils it down to one thing. And it was the same thing that he said to Martha. Same thing that he said to Israel in the gospel. Same thing he's saying to the church in Ephesus right here. The main thing is my love relationship with you. He said it in the second chapter, second verse. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. Pause right there. I remember, to put it in our evangelical phraseology, when you were on fire. That's what he's saying. I remember when you were on fire, the devotion of your youth. I remember when I was a driving passion of your life. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, difficult dry places, through a land not sown, in lean times. Verse three, Israel was holy to the Lord. He's expressing how precious they were to him. The first fruits of all of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Israel, you were precious to me. I protected you. I cared for you. Verse four, hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Pause, pause. Look at me. Don't look at the passage. Look at me. What the Lord says next was to the great shame of the southern kingdom of Judah. That the Lord would have to speak in this way to his people is a shame. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Here's the shame that he had to ask, what fault did your ancestors find in me? In other words, what do my people keep finding that is so much better than me? That's to my shame. That's to our shame. That God would ever have to utter that to humanity. Because the obvious backdrop here is that there is nothing better, more glorious, more valuable than Jesus Christ and knowing him. Everything else is rubbish. 
but that God in his love, because he loves us, would ever say, let me just reason with you. What do you keep finding that's better than me? What do you keep finding that satisfies you more deeply than me? What do you keep finding that's more worthy of spending your life on? What is it that your father's found that was so much better than me? And then, again, the way that he speaks here is is almost embarrassing for us. Jeremiah chapter 3. God says, I myself say, how gladly I would treat you like my children. Precious to me, you're my own. And give you a pleasant land. I want to bless you. A beautiful inheritance. The most beautiful inheritance of any nation. Then look what he says. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. Pause right there. I thought when I made you my own and blessed your life, that the natural response and outflow would be that you would call me father. Loving relationship. And that you would follow me. Because who else has delivered you from your sins? Who else has made you brand new? Who else has given you hope and new life and cleansed and sanctified you? I thought... God speaking in our terms here, humble, just, I can't believe he speaks this way to us. I, I, I just thought that when I made you my own and blessed your life, you'd call me daddy and follow me. It just seemed logical and right. Then look what he says. This is embarrassing. Verse 20. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, So you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Then hope enters in, and he says, Return, faithless people, and I will cure your backsliding. Return. I'm not asking you to make remuneration. I'm not asking you to undo all the evil that you've done in the land. I'm not asking you to jump through a million hoops. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your kids. I'm telling you, because I love you as my own, return to me and I will heal you. Freeing us in an instant from that which we fear most, failing in our own power. I can't muster up the wherewithal to love Christ in the way that he's worthy of. I can't muster up the wherewithal to follow Jesus as I ought to follow him in my life. I can't create out of nothing the love I ought to have for him in my heart and the obedience with which I ought to display to honor him. But he says, just come to me and I will cure your backsliding. I will heal it. Put it in New Testament terms. I will do a work in you by the Holy Spirit through repentance. Peter would say to the same nation 700 years later, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent therefore that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. It's the same message. You're doing lots of wonderful things. There's great things in your life. There's so much going on but I have this against you. Not because I'm mad at you or I hate you because I love you. Return. Just come back to me. Repent. I'll do a work by the Holy Spirit of healing you, transforming your heart. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow, your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Pure, undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. We know that we only love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. I know how this sermon feels, okay? I've sat with it all week. 
You only need to sit with it for about 45 minutes. I sat with it all week. I know how this feels. I'm with you there. The thrust of Scripture, the point of the gospel, is not how much we love God, but but how much He loves us. But this isn't to be lost on us. We're not meant to be black holes of God's love. We are meant to be full of love and reciprocation. He's made us alive that we might know him in relationship. Love relationship. We love because he first loved us. What kind of love? The Apostle John already wrote about it in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he gave himself for us. He's loved us with an everlasting, self-sacrificial, never-ending, never-stopping, beyond imagination, bled for us, the sinless Son of God, love. That we might know that love, enjoy that love, be transformed by that love, and see the great value of Jesus that he might then be our first love. So here's what I tried to do all week. I, I tried to figure out how this text is not talking about me. <laughs> right? I mean, we love doing this. We love reading the Bible and being like, oh, so-and-so's got to see this. <laughs> I often do it. I read the text. I'm like, oh, I cannot wait to preach this to second service. Oh, Yeah. And this is a really, really hard-hitting text, so I spent a lot of the week trying to figure out how it doesn't apply to me. And so I had to, I had to ask some, some hard questions. How, what makes me, how do I know I haven't left my first love? So I started asking myself questions like, where is Jesus in my daily decisions? Because that's going to tell me something. Where is he in my thought processes, my daily decisions? That's going to that's tell me something. Right? It's, it's, it's incongruent. It's silly to say, Jesus is number one, but he doesn't figure prominently in your decisions. About our marriages, about our relationships, about our consumption, about our spending, about our honesty, about our forgiveness. If Jesus doesn't figure prominently, primarily in these things, then, then, then maybe this text is speaking something to us. I've asked myself this week, where is Jesus in my decisions? How do I view and deal with the way that others have sinned against me? That's a a pretty big determinant for me. So like if Jesus is a passion of my life, the one who has forgiven me and cleansed me of all unrighteousness, and filled me with the Father's love, and I'm brand new in him, then I can get beyond how people have sinned against me or hurt me. But when I'm stuck in that, when I get stuck in those things, by how something costs me or hurt me or damaged my reputation or injured my ego, then I have to ask myself, who's on center stage? Who's really primary here? If I can't get over that and forgive, if I can't release that, if I demand to look better there, then who's really on center stage? How does Jesus figure in our schedules? Come on. What you schedule is most important to you. That's it. That's important. Where is Jesus in the schedule? This is just... Questions I've asked myself to help myself think because I want to get out from underneath this text. I spend most of my time doing good things, the ministry. Most of my time, like the church in Ephesus. I want to get away from that giant but statement. And then I just asked myself this one really directly. Was there ever a time in my life where I was more on fire for Jesus than I am now? Now, I want to be careful with that. Okay, I want to be careful with that. I don't want us to get stuck in, in feelings. Think about it. I've been married to my wife. We just celebrated our 17th anniversary. And when we first fell in... 
That's kind of easy. When we first fell in love, she was 18 and I was 21. And when you're 18 and 21 and in love, hey, things just like feel a certain way. I mean, there's this like power and passion and joy and excitement when you first fall in love and I'm 21 and she's 18 and she's so hot and awesome and oh my gosh. One time I, right as we were falling in love, I went on a fishing trip with my dad and I was going to be on this boat for a couple days and she wrote me a little letter and sent it with me. And as soon as that boat started going, I told my dad, I'm seasick. And I just went down below and just read this letter. (laughs) For hours, it smelled like her. I would just... And just read it over and over and over and just think about it and just, I can't wait to get off this stupid fishing boat to see this girl again. There's something about the first love like that, you know. But listen, very carefully now, very seriously, we, we, we've been married 17 years now and I will tell you that I love that woman more today than I've ever loved her in my life. But it's not... So many husbands are in trouble right now. (laughs) But it's different, isn't it? It's different now. It's a deeper, truer, more wonderful, valuable love. But it's different. I'll go away for 10 days. There's no letter. I'm not sniffing. (laughs) It's it's different. It's just, just... Natural feelings, it's different, but it is deeper and more wonderful. And I love that woman more than I have ever loved her. Now, I want us to be careful with the question, have you ever been more on fire for Jesus than you were? Because there are those days where it feels like you're 18 and he's 21 and you were just forgiven for the first time and it blows your flipping mind. Because I know the depth of my sin. And when I realized that I had been forgiven, cleansed, washed, sanctified, glorified, and that the God of the universe knows my name and numbers a hair upon my head, and his thoughts toward me are more than all the sand on the seashores in all the world, that he loves me with that love, and I experience that for the first time, there's this thing about it, Right? 17 years later, 10 years later, 3 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, it maybe feels different. Maybe. Maybe. But we still have to ask ourselves the question, because here's what it comes down to. For whom am I living? And in what way is that evidential? That shows us who the first love is. I find that most times the first love is me if it's not Jesus because my thoughts and my actions and my wants are being formed by my ego, my desires, my comfort, my fun, my cover-ups. So that's what I've been dealing with this week. Is this text speaking about me? I think it has been. So then I had to ask this question. Why do I, why do we ever leave our first love? That's what God was trying to get Israel to think when he said there in Jeremiah 2, what fault did your fathers find with me that they went so far from me? That question has to be asked because I I find that I'm prone to wander. Why? I know who Christ is. I know his glory. I know his love. Why? Thought about that a lot this week. And I found about six different reasons. Distractions, drift, people, pain, sin, and slop. I'm a preacher, so I put them in letters like that. You know, the thing about Ephesus was it was a beautiful place with lots of stuff. It was a beautiful place with lots of stuff. Lots of interchange, lots of thoughts, affluence. It's a beautiful culture. 
I find that I'm easily distracted by those shiny things. They're meant to be good things. They're meant to be gifts from the Father. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father above, right? And they're meant to be received as blessings with joy and gratitude. But they're not meant to supplant passion for Jesus. I just find that I'm really easily distracted by good things. And so I, I, I always got to kind of check my priorities and check my motives and make sure I've got things straight. Our culture is very much like the Ephesian culture. Lots of good stuff available. But we need to hear what Jesus said to Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered, distracted by so many things. And you know, if we don't keep Jesus in the forefront of our minds through reading scripture on a regular basis, praying on a regular basis, meditating on truth, practicing the lifestyle of worship, sacrificing through these spiritual disciplines. If we don't keep Jesus front and center, things that aren't that shiny start to look really shiny. Do you know what I'm saying? Because all of a sudden, it's like that deep satisfaction is gone because I've wandered and wandered, excuse me, and now I'm looking to find it in all these weird places. I mean, think about Peter. Peter was with Jesus for three years, and all of a sudden, one night, he's following Jesus at a distance, and next thing you know, he's warming his hands by the enemy's fire. That fire never would have attracted Peter a few days before, but now Peter's put some distance between him and Jesus. He's a little distracted by his own ego and his own well-being. And there he is doing something he never would have done in his sane moments, warming himself at the enemy's fire. Things that hold no real shine seem to glitter and glow when we let go of the face of Christ in our daily lives. We get distracted with them. I do. This, is, this sermon's just for me, I'm finding out. <laughs> Drift. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, let us hold tightly to what we've learned lest we begin to drift from it in our hearts. You know, the Christian life following Jesus is one of discipline. And you've heard it said before, if you're not swimming upstream, you're floating downstream. If you're not pursuing Christ, you're drifting from Christ. And how does scripture tell us to pursue him? With all your heart. Your favorite verse is 20, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans you have for me, says the Lord. Plans to prosper me and not to harm me. Plans to give me hope in the future. You're like, I love that verse. But verses 12 and 13 say, and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. I know the plans I have for you. I've got good things in store for you. But what you're supposed to do is seek me with all your heart. And I find that if I'm not actively, passionately, somewhat tenaciously pursuing Jesus, I drift. I drift. Often my drift is just because I'm busy. Who's not busy? You go up to someone, bro, how are you? Oh, dude, busy. I've been so busy. You know they're not busy. Oh my gosh, super busy, dude. I spent like four hours on Facebook and I'm super busy and... <laughs> Just keeping track of everyone and what they're up to and so many posts and oh my gosh. You're not busy, you're distracted and you're drifting. Keep diligent watch over your heart, the scriptures say, for from it flow the issues of life. But I find that if it's not distractions and drifting, it's often people. You know, because people will break your heart. It's just the way it is, brothers and sisters. People will break your heart. And I like vengeance. I really do. It's a sin issue. I like vengeance. I like grudges. I like punishing people and making them pay for what they've done to me. You can't always do that, you know what I mean? You're like the pastor in a small town. So when I do that, everybody knows. (laughs) So I find that God himself is an easier scapegoat than the actual person. And I often deflect my grievances with people onto God. You you know what I'm talking about? Or the way that someone has let us down and so now we're going to get revenge on God. That pastor let me down so I'm not going to follow Jesus. I know people in this town. I know people outside this town hundreds of miles away who don't follow Jesus because they were somehow disappointed with me. 
You know what? In some way, that'll be on me. I'll answer before God, but in some way, it'll be on them. Jesus is Jesus. Everyone else will let you down. Don't let people become an excuse for drifting away from God. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Someone in the church hurt you. I get that. That's real. There is no more hurtful place in the world than the church. But there's also no more healing place in the world than the church. I get it. Somebody hurts you. I get it. But that doesn't mean that we give up on Jesus. Our only hope is in him. And connected to them, the people thing is pain. You know, pain allows us to rationalize and justify just about anything. I could excuse any behavior, any thought processes in my deep places of pain. It's not right, but that's what we do. And I know, I, I know pain. And at times when my daughter was dying, there was nothing that I didn't feel justified in no matter how sinful, unrighteous, rebellious. And we sometimes use our deep places of pain as an excuse to drift away from Christ because after all, he could have fixed it if he wanted to. And he didn't, so I'm mad at him. Get that. That'll all be sorted out. For now, the call in our deep places of pain is to follow Jesus, not forsake Jesus. But our our pain blinds us into moving away. That divorce was unfair. The way that he treated me was unfair. The things that she said about me, the fact that my daughter died, what happened to him, it's not fair. I'm mad at God. I'm moving away. I understand it. I've been there. It's not the place to go with pain. Jesus is always the place to go. If it's not a distraction or a drift, a person or a pain, it's almost always sin. I don't need to explain this one very carefully. Sin breaks intimacy with God. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But when we sin, we are knowingly breaking intimacy with God. And what happens when we do that is a hardening of the heart. And what happens when we persist in sin is the heart is hardened over and over again and then a clouding of perception. And now we don't see clearly. And in Christ, God has brought us into clarity to see things as they really are. But sin blinds and it hardens and it skews and it perpetuates itself. And we're moving further and further away. And if it's not any of those things, it's usually a combination of all of them, then it's just sloppy living. Jesus called us to be disciples. It comes from the word discipline. To follow Jesus is to live a disciplined life. You can't get away from that. Listen, if you're going to endeavor to follow Jesus and you're not going to have a degree of discipline, it's going to be a really rough road. You're always going to be dealing with drift. You're always going to be dealing with the same sins. You're always going to be struggling with the same bitterness. You're always going to be rationalizing your actions and thoughts in the same pain. The Christian life is one of discipline, purpose in prayer, devotion to scripture, meditating continually on truth, a lifestyle of worship, being honest before God in the community of faith about what's going on in us, the Christian life is one of discipline. No discipline, you will drift. There's no way around that. But he has given us his Holy Spirit. He's not left us to pull ourselves up by the proverbial bootstrap. He's not told us to do it in our own strength. He has given us his Spirit who is always working and willing in us to please him who's always exalting Jesus in our hearts and our minds. And if we'll but return a little bit, he begins a work of curing our backsliding through discipline, giving ourselves to prayer, scripture, sacrificial giving, meditation, journaling. 
So these are just the things I looked at in my life this week that I'm identifying as sources of moving away from my first love. And I'm so thankful that Jesus gives us a plan of action. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. What do I do? Oh my gosh, Britt has made me feel so bad during this sermon. I just feel like the worst person. What do I do? First of all, don't do that. Okay? The Holy Spirit convicts us. Satan tries to condemn us. Big diff. Your flesh likes to partner with Satan more than the Spirit. The flesh wages war against the Spirit. Don't give in to condemnation. That's not what God has for you. He's convicting us of truth and righteousness and wonderful things. And so Jesus says, here's what you do. Remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the first things literally in the Greek, the things of first importance. Remember from where you have fallen. Okay, remember to when Jesus was on center stage of your life. You know what helped me do that this week? Is to think deeply on the gospel. Gospel means good news. Good news requires bad news. There is no good news without some bad news. Paul said, in Philippians, I forget what lies behind. I press on toward the upward call of Jesus Christ. There's a time to forget what lies behind. There's a time to remember what lies behind. To preach the good news of the gospel to me, sometimes this week I had to remind myself from the, the, of the depths from which I've been saved. I thought about some of the specific sins that are under the blood of Christ so that I could rejoice that they're under the blood. I've thought about some of the things I did and got away with before people, but God knew and forgave me when I confessed and repented so that I could rejoice in his forgiveness. I thought about some of the things that had me bound that I've been set free from by the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel so that I could remember the joy of that first love and repent of exalting lesser things. He says, remember from where you have fallen and repent Repent. Repent is a gift. It's not a bad word. If you were to stand up right now in front of the church and say, I repent, everyone would go, yes. Because it's a gift to the church that we can repent. Can you imagine Christian life without repentance? You got saved, but don't ever blow it again, dude, or you're out. (laughs) But he's given us repentance as a continual gift. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And then he says, and do the first things. Do what you have to do to reorient your life to Jesus being number one. It's not haphazard. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait for a feeling. Lord, it doesn't feel like it did when I was 18. That's so foolish. What if my wife said to me, it doesn't feel like it did when I was 18, so I'm leaving you. That's that's such a perverse, vain understanding of love. Don't wait for a feeling. Love the one who loves you and has given himself for you. Do it as an act of joyful love obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit that you might be healed. And I have to say what Jesus said at the end there of verse five. He said, or else I'm going to take your lampstand out of its place. That doesn't mean that you'll lose your salvation. It does mean that Jesus shuts some churches down. That's what he said. The golden lampstands are the churches. Jesus said, listen, you want to make it about your good works? You want to make it only about doctrine? You want to make it about perseverance? You want to make it only about righteousness in an immoral culture? It's not what it's about. I'm going to shut you down. It's about me. And the moment it ceases to be me is the moment it ceases to be true church. And it appears from history that the church in Ephesus rallied At the beginning of the second century, someone went there and they said, this church is thriving and on fire for Jesus. But a couple centuries later, somebody visited there and they could only find three Christians in the town and they didn't know who 
John or Paul were. Jesus shut this church down at some point. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes, this is verse 7, he who overcomes, and in this context in the book, it means clings to Jesus, who is the Lamb that has overcome. He who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Tree of life is what was lost in the garden. I will restore what has been lost and welcome him into the paradise of God. Glory with him forever in his place where he gets his way. This is a wonderful hope of Christianity. May God give us grace to pursue Jesus. Lord, thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And we could only pray, Lord, that you would revive us according to thy word. Thank you that you save us from trying to be better and you actually transform us by the work of your spirit and the truth of the gospel. Lord, again, keep us from condemnation, which is a work of the enemy and of the flesh. And bring us into a fiery resolve and a happy following of you. Bring us into a place of joyful obedience. Deal with our idols and our lesser things, our distractions and our drifts, our excuses, our failure to prioritize, and our sin, Lord. Be gracious to us and cause your face to shine upon us.